0: Hello, welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm one of your hosts, Dana Osman. here with my friend in Chavruta, Ann Gordon. Our Daf today, Masachat Daf Kaf Bet. So we come to the end of another masachat. Um, I felt personally this one was a whirlwind. Some of this has to do with me and Ann and our sort of crazy uh, recording schedule that we committed to to get this all done for Pesach. Um, but this is definitely a Masachet I would come back to. I really enjoyed learning a lot about the inner workings of the temple, doing a little Yushalmi, I uh, want to thank everybody who joined us yesterday on our CM. Um, And uh, I guess we're just going to finish it up. And then remember the daf waits for no one. Uh, tomorrow we will be beginning Masachat Yoma. Uh, so please, we encourage you to invite friends, family, anybody who you think may be interested in joining the Talking Talmud family and start learning with us a little bit or dedicate a little bit of time to uh, Talmud every day. We'd love to have them join us. So uh, this final Mishnah that we're discussing uh, is speaking about um, meat of korbanos that becomes um, tame. So usually if you have meat of the Koche kachim, right, the sort of what we would call the more holy uh, types of korbanos, which would be like an ola, a chatas, or an asham, and somehow you can't use them anymore uh, for the korban, they have to be burned within the azara, within the temple courtyard. But let's say meat becomes tame. Um, so, there's a whole discussion here about where Tame meat actually becomes burned. And the Mishnah here essentially uh, gives us four opinions about where that meat becomes burned, right? So, we have Basar Katche Katchim, mat. So, we have this meat of the Katche kachrim that becomes Tame, right? This meat of the Olachata, or the Asham. Bein Abatuma, Bein Vladatuma, whether it became Tame from an Abatuma or a Vladatuma. Bein Bifnim, Bein Bachut whether the Tuma contamination becomes, was inside or outside the temple courtyard. So it's interesting. There's two factors here that we're going to see at play for the four opinions, uh, which is what type of Tuma it became tummy with, an av or Vlad, and where the location of the Tuma, of the contamination happened. Was it um, inside or outside of the temple courtyard? In all these cases, the meat should be burned inside the courtyard. Initiative> but if it became tame with an avatuma, not, and it doesn't make a difference where, but just if it was an avatuma type of tuma, then it has to be burned outside. Beit Helo says everything is burned outside, as opposed to Beit Shammai said burnt inside. Except for Hatuma, that should be burned inside the courtyard. Rabbi Eliezer, this is the third opinion, right, that which becomes Tameh uh, through contact with an bifnimu bain regardless of the uh, location, always should be burned outside. But if it's a Vlat bain it should be inside or outside the courtyard. So in other words, for Rabbi Eliezer, the factor is not, the location of the contamination, it actually has to do with, uh, you know, what type of contamination was, Av or Vlad. And then finally, we have Rabbi Akiva who says, Makom sham For Rabbi Akiva, it's the location that's the most important. And so therefore, he says, wherever it became tummy, that's where you're going to burn it. You're not going to move it around. So essentially if you, um, you know, the Gemara, one of the Gemaras that I looked at actually have like a nice chart here, right? So for bechama, you're burning outside just Ab, Just an av hatuma, right? And that has to do with the fact that it's really a biblical source of Tuma, so you don't want it inside um, at all. Um, and th- everything else will be burned inside. So really, there's only one category for base hill. There's three categories. That's and for the akiba, it's also going to be two and two. But again, for Rabbi Eliezer, and Rabbi Akiva, what it has to do with is what's the more important factor? Is the important factor the, um, the type of Tuma or is the important factor uh, the, you know where the contamination actually took place? Um, the only thing that I really want to point out, and the, there's a rather short discussion here on the Gemara, but they then go through an opinion, they quote uh, Bar Kapra and Rabbi Yochanan, and they get into a whole discussion about how they fit in and their opinions actually relate to the Mishnah. But one of the things that they do here is, is they say begin to Rabbi Akiva Amar, that Beit Shammai ruled this way because of the principle stated by Rabbi Akiva, makom tumatom sham teheis And then they later on talk about Beit Hillel and says begins to Rabbi Shimon, right? That Beit Hillel ruled the way that they did because machlo, because of Rabbi Shimon. Machlo, mashkos shel, mitzora mishtalchin, chutz, leshlos, machano. Right, talking about Rabbi Shimon and the idea that the Maturah was banished from all three of the camps, uh, which, you know, which was something that we've talked about before um, in Masaqa Um So to me, what was striking is, I always think of Beit Helo and Beit Shammai, and, and I, I wonder, we, we didn't talk about this before we prepped this episode together. They're like the pre-Tanaitic houses. And here, the Gemara is saying that Beit Helo and Beit Shammai's opinion is based on Tanaim, which who come after them, right? Rabbi Akiva and Rabbi Shimon, and I, I don't have an answer for this at all. But sort of the like lack of chronology is interesting to me here on this page. It's sort of like a Beit Shammai ruling was impacted by Rabbi Akiva. Rabbi Akiva is way after Shammai and Beit Shammai, and that you have a Beit Hillel ruling impacted by the opinion of Rabbi Shimon again, way later, um, and. I don't know. There's sort of this, like, out-of-time element here to question, the
1: opinion. Let me ask you a question, Dana, because I feel like maybe you know this better than I do. Certainly, Rebekivah is after Hillel and Shammai. Do we know how long the yeshiva themselves continue? I, I, mean, I, I don't know. I don't know,
0: and that sort of made me ask this question. I mean, those yeshivas did continue for a while. I mean, that's the whole idea of, you know, that, uh, you okay. know, right, that they there was more machlokets with them and not you know, not as much Machlok as um, later on. But I mean, you know, usually they're looked at as sort of, I don't know, maybe go into like the first century C. Like we don't really hear about them, you know, much later on than that. So I I just, I don't know. I don't, I I have to think, there's probably someone who knows this better than me. Um, It just seems that this seems later. And I was very taken by the idea of like their opinion. So I don't know if it's that their opinion was, impacted by it or it's more that Rebbe and Rebbe Shimon articulated a principle which is what the underlying principle is of the Beit Shama and Beit Hillel opinion here.
1: Right that was the next thing I was going to say because like that happens all the time. Right but you see how it's
0: fr- like it's phrased on the page. I don't know it just gave me oh, a yeah.
1: Oh yeah okay now I want to actually I'm going to touch on the last, the final Mishnah, the final Halacha of the of the parak of the Masachet. And then I want to jump to something that's um, a little bit more down on the daf. And Yardena, we have uh, one of uh, your Nesim nista, your hidden miracles here, because today being Rosh Chodesh, and we're going to talk about, oh my goodness, the Karbanot of Rosh Chodesh. Isn't that nice timing? Okay, just quickly, the Mishnah says as follows. Evrei HaTamid Nitanin Mechatzi Keves Ulamata, So when we're talking about the Korban Tamid, we have to keep in mind that we're talking about animals and it's pretty graphic, you know, again, the limbs of the daily offering, right? So they didn't put it straight onto the fire right away. They Rather, they put them on the ramp of the Mizbeach, on the altar, and it would be like from the halfway point and below, you know, and then they say, well, this would be on the western side, and this would be um okay, so that's the the regular Tamid and ends up on the halfway mark. The Musafin is on the halfway mark and, and below, or they're both from the halfway mark and below, but on the eastern side. And then the rosh Chodeshim and on Rosh Chodesh or Shabbat, the Musafin, the additional offerings would be placed on the ramp at that halfway point and below. Oh wait, one second, I have said this wrong. Let me read this again. The regular tamid is from the halfway point and below. The regular additional offerings would be off, meaning Shabbat and Rosh Chodesh, whatever, would be offered from the same midway mark and below, but on the eastern side. not just Musafim, but specifically Rosh Chodesh. So that's a correction for what I've said above. So the Rosh Chodesh ones would be offered they were put on the top of the upper part of the edge. The karkov is the edge of the mizbeach. And then the Mishnah here goes on to talk about machatzit shekel and bikurin and tithing and so on. And it's important to read that halacha because it also pertains to the second half of the daf which is really the closing of the masachet. But I here want to get to the business about the about the Rosh Chodesh. So the Gemara says as follows. When are we talking about this karkov, this edge? Ezul karkov ha-mizbeach. is this edge? Ama ben karen le-karen. Ma'kom koanim. So it seems that there's a cubit wide, right? It's an ama wide between one horn of the Mizbeh, one horn of the altar and the other at the top of it. And the, and it was like designated for the koanim to walk there when they would move around the Mizbeh doing their all these things that they have to do. One point to note is that I remember when I discovered just how large the Mizbakh is, right? like the fact that people were walking on it. It's not like a table that they would then, I mean, there were tables with important functions, but the Mizbakh itself is quite large. Um, And then, and I'm sure we'll talk about it much further, much more when we get into other Masakhtot that delve even more into the Karbanot. And then the Gemara continues bat Chodesh Mi Kodem. now we get to this um which takes priority, which I feel kind of lines up nicely with the all the Gemara's that we've just recently seen about uh, making assumptions right about what your what your proportion of the population is and you know in this sense of which takes priority in this case though we're going to talk about frequency. mar Chodesh so according to Rabbi Mirmia, he says that Rosh Chodesh should take precedence, they should be offered first. Highlight So the Gemara then switches to Aramaic, right? This is the comment on Rabbi Mirmia's position. And it says, one second, let me just find the place, I'm sorry. Um, the idea is, this is the strength of it. Shiro Shabbat v'shiro Rosh Chodesh, shiro Rosh when the Leviim would sing the proper songs of Shabbat and the songs of Rosh Chodesh, they would sing the Rosh Chodesh songs first. So that backs up this idea that the Karbanot, that the sacrifices of Rosh Chodesh should also take precedence. I like the, the phenomenon, right? They have different songs, and everybody knows it's going to be the different, the different song. Rabbi Yossi says, however, Rabbi Yossi, Shnaya taman b'shem Rabbi Yochanan, Shehu Rosh Chodesh. When you're talking about the songs, it's a different situation than the Korbanot. He says that Rabbi Yochi says in the name of Rabbi Yochanan that the reason that we sing the songs of Rosh Chodesh before the song of Shabbat, meaning when they coincide on the same day, is to make sure that everybody knows that it's Rosh Chodesh. Meaning presumably everybody does know that it's Shabbat, but Rosh Chodesh is a more variable date, so they wanted to publicize it since they have to. You know, everybody's depending on hearing the news from the Sanhedrin. What if you missed it? So make sure the Levian would make sure to sing the. Rosh Chodesh song first, so that more people would know. Okay, it's not how you all have seen. What would they do? They would. So how did they do it? When they would sing that song for Rosh Chodesh, right? And how are they supposed to be doing this if they're putting the korbanot of Shabbat first? So the Gemara here says that the kohen would first shecht. He would slaughter the Korbanot, the Musaf of Shabbat, and the Leviim would then sing the song of Rosh Chodesh. But here, Musfei Shabbat, Musfei Rosh Chodesh, Musfei Shabbat, Kodmin, Hashem kol hatadir kodim But so in this case, when we've got the, the, the Musaf of Shabbat and the Musaf of Rosh Chodesh, right? we're not talking about songs, right? we're talking about really the Korbanot themselves, then the Musaf of Shabbat would take precedence why? Because, as I said, it depends on frequency. Um, all that which is frequent, more frequent, you know, than the next thing over takes precedence over that thing. Right? It's not the most elegant formulation, but basically, it says that which is the more frequently occurring thing. Takes precedence over the thing that is less frequently occurring. And we see this in all kinds of other situations as well. I can't imagine that this is the first time we've talked about it, but I'm also not sure that I can recall exactly when we have in the past. Maybe, Dana, maybe you know.
0: Uh, no, I don't remember. Sorry.
1: <laughs> okay, so, so we have, but the point here is that we've, first of all, we've got, again, this kind of two things happening at the same time or where you've got a question over what is the status, what's going to happen. And the question here is specifically with the Korbanot, the Mus'af Korban on the Mizbech, what are you going to do first? It's a Shabbos, it's Rosh Chodesh that falls out on Shabbat. Now what do you do? So, meaning as opposed to today, which is just Rosh Chodesh, not Rosh Chodesh falling out on Shabbat. And so the idea is that you always would offer the Korban of Shabbat first, because it happens more frequently, even though the Levim would sing the, the psalms of Rosh Chodesh first to let everybody know. Now, Yerdena, you and I have been talking about how, you know, daily life was, right? And I feel like I don't know how many people were hearing the song of the Leviam in the Beit HaMikdash, and I don't know how many people were present for the offering of the Korban at that time, but these but these um, the, the claims about the importance of these dates, you know, apply across time, I feel. Uh- Right, like the, not, Yeah, no,
0: that I agree with. Right, I think here we're just seeing sort of an, and these discussions come up all the time. What happens when you have two events or two time markers that have to happen at the same time, right? So we saw that in Masachah Brachot, like what's the order of davening. So now you're seeing it here with the korban out, right? What's the order of 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 bringing the korban?
1: But I would say that if we're gonna we're gonna pay attention to what does it mean to have Shabbat and what does it mean to have Rosh Chodesh. We don't have the kharkov, kharkov, we don't have that edge on the Mizbeach, but we certainly can understand that there's a certain level of precedence given to Shabbat because it happens more frequently. On the other hand, there's also this idea of making it be known that it is the day of Rosh Chodesh, and that's going to happen without a Sanhedrin, meaning, okay, sure, everybody can check their calendars and everybody can is responsible for knowing on their own, but in terms of like the, the ethos of it, I feel like there's still an identity discussion going on here about what is the nature of Rosh Chodesh, what is the nature of Shabbat. Um, which I think is, though it is not the very end of the daf, I do think that it is a fair way to end our discussion of this masachet. Um, I should note that the rest of the masachet does go back to talk about, you know, again, about the Shgalim and the makhati um, and bikurim, and again, the daily doings in the in the Beit Mikdash. Right. I, I just,
0: uh, I don't know. I'm curious to see, because Yoma's going to have a lot about uh, the, you know, the, also the, that won't be the daily workings, but let's say the workings of the holiest day um, of the year itself. Um, And, um, you know, I think it's also nice the way that it, you know, sort of wants to end um, on a a hopeful note, you know, that the sort of the discussion at the end is, you know, when will the next Beit HaMikdash be uh, rebuilt? You know, that it it should be rebuilt. That's sort of like, The hope really is, and I think that's maybe part of why we study these halachot, everything is sort of going to go back to what it was, you know, that even it's rebuilding, when the truma would, you know, the trumat lishka would be taken, everything will eventually go back to the way that it was. And that's why it's important for us to study these things, because it's really, it's an expression of hope that, you know, we will eventually get to do these things again.
1: I'll add one note to that, which is that that discussion is really about a convert's Shkalim, right? That's a convert participating in the ritual of what does it mean to be Jewish, right? And I feel like if we open the masachet talking about census taking, right? I feel like this is um, an interesting perspective towards with an eye to, towards the future.
0: Oh, yeah. And I think it brings the whole masachet in a very sort of full, full circle way.
1: Okay, so just to close off, ha'dran Allah kol harokin, that's the end of the parak. Vasil masachet shkalim. And here we have very quickly... Dispatch with Masachet Shkalim.
0: Well, that's our DAF discussion for the day. Rank us, review us on all major podcasts. Thank you to Rev. Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hadron website. Let us know what you thought about the stuff on our Talking Talent Facebook page. Join us tomorrow as we begin Masachet Yoma together. And until tomorrow, go and learn.